Well, as you know, this summer I had a bit of a sabbatical for six weeks, did some various things. Uh, one of those things was camping with the kids. And, and this summer, Stella really honed her rock skipping skills. To skip a rock, you have to throw it so fast and so parallel to the water that the rock is repelled and skips across because of surface tension. Yay, hydrogen bonding in physics, science. Yeah, we love surface tension. Oh. The physics of rock skipping became somewhat of a metaphor for me over the summer um, because leading up into this renewal leave, I was feeling myself with a sense, uh, experiencing a sense of dis-ease, a restlessness, a sense that I often get through life rather than really live life, a conviction that I'm moving through life so quickly that I easily, far too easily, skip over the top of my relationships, both with Jesus and with the people who I care about the most. My longing has always been, but it really rose to the top this summer, to get far beneath the surface, to quit skipping over the surface of things, to plug into the depths and mysteries of my heart and the heart of God and the hearts of those who I love and am committed to. Maybe you can relate to what I'm saying. I'd love to, in fact, I'd love to talk to you further about the things I'm learning about intimacy, my own, and, and with God uh, at a different time. I'd love to have those conversations. But I don't bring up rock skipping or my story to talk about me. I bring it up because the text this evening brings it up. We find ourselves once again in the book of Samuel. And the story is about a transition from Eli's priesthood to Samuel's prophetic memory. From the time of judges and tribalism, the Rwanda story made me think of this, from a time of, of being identified by your tribe to a time of being identified as a nation of Israel. And last week we saw how corrupt Eli's sons were behaving. They were the priests of Israel and they were disasters. They abused their power, they committed sexual assault, Adultery, they, they desecrated the sacrifices and offerings to God. And in short, the text tells us that they were priests of God and yet they didn't even know God. Eli, their father, the high priest, was also responsible. It was his job to discipline his sons for their sin, but instead we, we read this indictment that Eli preferred his sons over honoring God. So in a very real sense, the passage we're about to look at tonight is a narrative history that takes us from one chapter in Israel's history, the time of the judges, and transitions us to the time of the kings, of King David, King Saul, and the others. This reading of the text is accurate. It is a valid, valid way to read the Bible, but it's a skimming over the surface type of reading. It's informative and will help us understand the larger biblical narrative for sure. But there's so much more to the scripture than that. A deeper reading. This, the rock actually is able to get beneath the surface of the water. And I believe that the, the scripture we're going to look at this evening, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 3, has a lot to say about intimacy with God. Both the danger of neglecting an intimate relationship with Him and the good news that, that such a relationship isn't just a possible thing, but that when we adopt the right posture, we can have that kind of intimacy with, with God today. 
Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much that your word is living and active. Um, so often we read through these narrative stories of um, the Hebrew scriptures and we, we see them as information. Sometimes we wrongly see them as merely a backdrop for the New Testament. But Lord, I thank you that, that these scriptures speak to us, that they draw us into a deeper relationship with you. And I pray by uh, the power of your spirit that you would open your word up for us tonight. And that you would touch us in the deepest places of our heart where we need to be touched by you. Amen. So the way I'm going to format it this evening is I'm just going to walk through the text piece by piece. And I would love it if you get in the practice of just following along with your Bible. I'll be reading out of the Pew Bible um, just so that we can have some continuity together. Uh, and if you're interested in doing that with me, it's on page 270. 270. We're going to start with just the first verse, and then I promise we'll move a little quicker after that. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. Surface reading, rock skipping. We learn that Samuel has continued on in a good and righteous path. Even as a young man, as a young boy, he's serving the Lord, He's obedient to his, his master, Eli. But there's also this ominous comment, isn't there? Word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. From a storytelling perspective, we're set up to see in the next few verses the exceptional nature of God revealing himself to Samuel. But there's a deeper level reading as well. If God created us for a relationship, then why isn't he speaking? When it seems like the nation of Israel or these tribal people needed him desperately, their lives were falling apart. Two observations. The first, he was speaking, but it was rare. In the previous chapter, we read of a nameless man of God who brings the word of the Lord, a word of judgment to Eli, and a word of promise and hope for Israel. Now, who was this guy? Who was this guy that God was speaking to? We don't know. He's anonymous. And that's kind of the point. God is gracious. And when we need him most, he's going to speak. But he doesn't always work the ways that we expect him to work. Okay? Second, why wouldn't God speak through Eli and the priesthood? I mean, after all, that's what people would expect. That's how we normally would do it. Well, I think the reason is, is because throughout Scripture, God often refuses to speak His Word through those who are in open rebellion and disobedience. Rick Watts points out that the, to the disobedient, God is either silent or He's unintelligible. So some examples, if you're nerding out and you want to write these down and look them up later, Amos chapter 7, 16, and Amos chapter 8, 11. In those passages, God refuses to speak to the corrupt and to the disobedient. And then in Isaiah the prophet, he promises to speak through his prophet to warn the people of impending doom. But guess what? He says, none of them are going to understand me. So below the surface... On this passage, if we're seeking intimacy with God, we can start by asking the question simply, am I living in open disobedience? Am I humbly seeking the will of God by being faithful to the things he's already shown me? 
All right, let's continue on in the passage. So now I'm going to read uh, 1 Samuel 3, verses 2 through 10. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called to Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me? But Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Again, the Lord called, Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me? My son, Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. A third time the Lord called, Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me? Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli said, Samuel, go and lie down. And if he calls you again, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lie down in his place. The Lord came and stood there, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. First, the surface reading. Whenever you read the Bible, pay attention to the details. Ancient writers did not have the luxury of word processors and cheap pens and paper. Their writing style is almost always brief and to the point. So usually when we see repetition of words or repetition of stories or in, you know, detailed things, we've got to ask ourselves, what is the author trying to tell us? Take Eli, for example. He is the high priest of all Israel. We're learning things about him here in the story. What did he look like? I mean, all we know is he's fat. That's all we know. We don't know what a color his hair is, if it was gray, if he had a, a long beard or a short... We don't know anything about what he looked like. We don't know anything about his siblings. We don't know anything about his, who, what kind of people his parents were. We don't know what part of town he lived in. I mean, all of the things that you and I would think would be normal in a biography are just gone from this description of Eli. So then why does the narrator tell us that his eyesight was going. Of course, his, his dimming eyesight is a metaphor for his lack of spiritual sight. He's shown himself to be dull, hasn't he? In chapter 1, when Hannah is there praying, uh, Eli sees her and assumes that she's drunk, right? He totally misses it. He's completely dull to the spiritual life of Hannah. In chapter 2, we see his lack of insight in the lives of his evil sons. And here, we see his lack of clarity about the word of the Lord coming. Eli has become dull to the work of God all around him. The next detail is the comment about the lamp of God not going out. Any ancient reader would know that in the temple or in the tabernacle, as the time was there, there's a menorah burning. It always is burning. We have a Christ candle here. We don't own this building, so I don't have it burning 24-7. Uh, but anyway, uh, 
There's, there's a menorah, like, you don't have to write that in the story. Everybody knows the menorah burns 24-7, and everyone knows that in the morning, you have to replenish the olive oil, because at night, no one's replenishing it, so it almost goes out, and then they fill it up, and it stays going. Why is this detail in there? It could be telling us, as some scholars say, that it's telling us what time of day, or, or more so, what time in the morning, this vision comes to Samuel. If the menorah is almost out, then... It needs to be replenished. That means it's like almost, you know, dawn, like right before the dawn. That could be. But, you know, the Hebrew language has much clearer ways of saying that God spoke to, to Samuel in the morning. Like, they have a word for morning. They could, have, they could have just said that. So why this detail about the lamp of Israel almost going out? I think, I think the details are there for this reason. Israel is in shambles. Her most prominent spiritual leader, Eli, was dull to the word of God. Things looked hopeless, but in the darkness, the darkness doesn't have the last say. I mean, excuse me, the Lord of the Rings Helm's Deep reference. Anyone else already there? It's like, come on. Like, Helm's Deep is almost taken by the evil dark orcs, and, and then on the third day, look to the east, and Gandalf comes on the white horse with light coming down, and yes, thank you. Some action. Um, okay. Excuse me that. Um, just before the light of Israel seems snuffed out, God brings new possibilities, new light, new revelation through a new person. No longer would he speak through the priesthood of Eli and Eli's family, but through the miracle child, through the one who was brought forth from barrenness and impossibility, Samuel. These are the things we can infer from just a surface reading of the text. And again, these details are important because they carry the story forward and they show us the faithfulness of God. Like this, this is an important way of reading the Bible. But if we get beneath the surface, there's a deeper reading of the text. We can find the small deep detail in the proximity of Eli and Samuel. Pay attention to the details. Why would the narrator tell us where Eli and Samuel were sleeping? I think the location of their sleeping chambers tells us something about their posture toward God. Eli is lying down in his usual place. We don't know what that means exactly, but it's most likely a small chamber on the edges of the tabernacle. People didn't live in the tabernacle. It was like a tent, and at this time, it wasn't traveling around anymore because the Israelites had settled in the promised land. The temple wasn't built yet, so the tabernacle was stationary in Shiloh, and they likely built a permanent structure around it with little offices and cells and storage area for the olive oil and the candles and the stuff, right? And the, so Eli, if it's anything like the temple in Jerusalem, probably had a cell or a room off to the side, normal place for a priest to sleep. We shouldn't be surprised by that, but when we consider the dullness of his spiritual insight, when we consider how he preferred his sinful sons over the holiness of God, when we ponder that he has forgotten or that he's gotten fat off of abusing the sacrifices of the people he was called to be the priest of and to shepherd and to love and to nurture, and when we, we can deduce that he has grown complacent in his relationship with God. And this is a warning to us the more apathetic we grow toward the scriptures and toward the people of God, 
toward the movement of grace in the sacraments and the rhythms of the worshiping community, the more we are numbed to the work of God around us, the more we are numbed to the voice of God in our lives. Samuel shows the complete opposite. He doesn't yet know the Lord. I love that word, yet. The indictment against Eli's sons is that they didn't know God. They've been serving him for years, didn't know God. Samuel's this boy who has shown himself to be faithful, and he doesn't know the Lord yet. Yet. Hopeful. He's inexperienced. Eli has literally forgotten more things about God and theology and being a priest than Samuel has ever known in his life. He even knows the right words to say when God calls. Isn't that ironic? That Eli knows how to respond to God, but he doesn't hear God himself. Eli doesn't have Samuel's hunger. And it shows in his proximity. Eli is blind, contented, slumbering, life away, status quo. Samuel doesn't even sleep in his own chamber. He's lying down in the tabernacle where the ark of God was. He's longing to be close to God. He hadn't yet known God intimately and as personally as he wanted, but he's definitely seeking. Samuel shows us two postures that don't take seminary degrees and that you can practice whether you are a child or an adult or a man or a woman Things you can do anywhere in the world where there's people. The first is proximity. Proximity to God. God is everywhere. But there are certain places and gatherings where we may find it easier to connect with Him. Like, in order to live, you and I need water, right? Water is almost everywhere. It's, in traces, it's in the air we are breathing, right? But in order to find life-giving water, we need to seek out concentrated fresh water. Like you can be out in the middle of the ocean, but there's no more water than the Pacific Ocean, and you can actually die of thirst out there because you can't get it, right? You need concentrated, good fresh water. And I know where to go if I want good fresh water. I buy a bottled water, or I go to a well, I had a well, um, or, you know, I'm fortunate to have a tap that has good water, right? Like we know the places to go to get good, clean water. In the same way, God is everywhere. But sometimes in the deserts of life or in the darkness of our own sin and emotional roller coasters, we need to go to trusted places where we are, we are sure we're going to meet him. The sacraments. The gathered community of worshipers. Serving alongside the poor and the forgotten people of our world. And maybe you have carved out a sacred time or a sacred space in your own life rhythm. Maybe it's at your home or a a, a prayer, a favorite walking path or a hiking trail. Some creative outlet you have for intimacy with God. The point is that Samuel is so hungry to be intimate with God that he puts himself in a place he knew he was most likely to connect with God. I'm not suggesting you sleep at the church, although if you want to do an overnight prayer vigil or something, we can arrange that. Um, That would be weird if you just started hanging out here all the time. But I am suggesting that if you're hungry for more intimacy with God, there are ways to draw close. And I'll just say that you're here now, and so that's a huge step in the right direction. The second posture is a willingness to listen. So you've got proximity, 
And you've got a willingness to listen. Notice Samuel's stance toward the voice of God. Here I am. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Not speak, Lord, for I've got things I want to say to you. Or speak, Lord, I've got lots of ideas you should do for me. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Sometimes when I talk to people about prayer, they feel intimidated because they, they feel like they don't know what to say. Or they've heard other people pray like with really fancy words and theological terms. It's like, oh, I don't feel like I can pray. I don't feel qualified to pray. That's just not true, but that's the subject of another sermon. Um, but, but what I want to say is that Samuel's posture shows us we don't need the right words. It's just listening. You don't have to do anything. You just listen. You don't have to have a certain level of education or fancy theological words to listen and obey. Okay. Let's keep marching. Verses 11 through 14. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hear it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family for beginning to end. For I told him I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Again, the surface reading of the passage of this story is reinforcing even more clearly that God is choosing Samuel to replace Eli and the established priesthood. God is setting up a new way of relating to his people. His word is coming to pass. There's no way around it. And it is a harsh word. It is a word of judgment on Eli and his family. And it's a word of hope and justice for those who have been oppressed by the abuses of the current priesthood. Now, as a follower of Jesus, who firmly believes that the God I worship in Christ is the same God as in the story of Samuel, is the same God who has ever been God, that he hasn't changed in his fundamental character, I find these words especially troubling, don't you? Listen again. Therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or by offering forever. At first glance it appears as though the God of grace and mercy that we sing about and that we see in Jesus, the God of redemption, is closing the door quite mercilessly toward the option of forgiveness for Eli's whole family forever. But this invites us to a deeper reading. A reading that helps us understand that forgiveness and repentance are always available, but not always chosen. And the harder a heart gets, and the more in a rut towards sinfulness you get, the least likely you are to repent. In the Mosaic Law, not all sin was able to be atoned for. Atonement means at one meant. It's a bringing together of relationships that were broken. And in the biblical context, it's talking about reconciling us because of our sin with God who is holy. At one meant, making our relationships whole again. 
In the book of Numbers, chapter 15, for example, it speaks of sacrifices that could be made for sins that were committed accidentally. Okay, so you're skipping rocks, back to that metaphor, uh, on the lake, and you didn't see the person swimming out there, you bonk them in the head. I don't know, they get a concussion, they have medical bills, something like that. Total accident. There's, an, there's a sacrifice for that, right? Or you are, uh, you're working on your house, and you hit your thumb with the hammer, and stuff comes out, and you're like, oh, I didn't mean to do that. Um, there's, there's a sacrifice for that, right? It's unintentional. But for those who sin intentionally, the scriptures say, there's no atonement for that. Unless you confess your deliberate sin and make restitution. So according to Leviticus 6, it seems that with confession and sacrifice, your sins are transformed from the intentional category to the unintentional category, and you can be forgiven. So there is a way for it. Now Eli and his sons were numb to their relationship with God. They did not know the Lord. They weren't seeking forgiveness. Their hearts were, uh, their hearts were hard. And they had started to get so comfortable with their sin that they stopped feeling convicted about it. And their sin no longer seemed like sin to them anymore. And I think, just to pause for a moment, this is a great danger uh, for the church. When, when we begin, a, as a church big C in the world, to call sinful things okay just because the culture says they are now okay. When we are okay with gluttony and greed just because we're comparing ourselves to people who live in the most, the most decadent, wealthy culture ever in the history of the world, that's not a good barometer of, what's, of what gluttony and greed are. When we ignore what the scripture says about sexuality because it's unpopular, when we ignore justice because we live in a political bubble that is more tied, uh, strongly tied to party affiliations, whether it's on the right or whether it's on the left, we've, we've, we've gotten out of our prophetic voice. If we follow Jesus, we're going to make everybody mad. Everybody gets mad. So when the church stops calling sin, sin, and starts calling, uh, starts calling evil normal, we are in dangerous water for two main reasons. One is, we hurt people. If, if people, because of our teaching, think there's nothing to repent of anymore, what do they do with that sin? And the second danger, and this one freaks me out just from my position, is that we could slip into being like Eli and start to want to placate people and not ruffle feathers because it feels good in the short term. When we keep doing that, we forget who we're really serving. On a personal level, you may feel like you've done things, said things, failed to do things that puts you in a category of too far gone, too distant from God. But let me just say as clearly as possible, unless you are unwilling to be honest about that sin and to take it to God in repentance, you can always come home. You can always come home. Think of Jesus' story of the prodigal son, which we spent weeks in this summer. Oh, he's 
so good. Not only can you come home if you repent of your sin, but God is longing for you to come home. He wants intimacy more with you than you want with Him. He wants nothing more than to walk in loving relationship with you. That's good news. Verses 15 through 18. Samuel lay down until morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision. But Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son. Samuel answered, here I am. What what was it he said to you? Eli asked. Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, he's the Lord, let him do what's good in his eyes. Surface reading again, part of the story that that firmly communicates now a shift from Eli to Samuel. Samuel is put in this awkward position of having to reprimand his mentor and spiritual authority figure. And we've seen Eli's apathy out in the open. He simply accepts God's judgment. Like, I guess it's going to happen. It's kind of fatalistic. He doesn't complain. He doesn't petition. He doesn't cry out. He doesn't repent. Rather than engaging God as an intimate son, Eli treats God as though he's just this distant dictator or authority figure whom he can't even relate to or talk to or repent. At a deeper level you begin to see the power of walking in intimacy with the Lord. Most of us want people to think well of us. Most people like to be liked. We don't want to disappoint people on purpose most of the time. But because Samuel has begun to know God so deeply, he's not tied neurotically to his mentor's opinion. He's free now to be an agent of the Lord. His identity is found in who God says he is, called, beloved, worthy. He's not tied to the opinions of other people. And you and I can look at this and say, we can be free as well. You are the beloved of God. You are created in his image. You are precious to God the Father. You can live in that freedom. That is awesome, especially for people pleasers. And finally, the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up. And he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh And there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. Samuel grew, no longer a boy, and none of his words fell to the ground. That's Bible talk for failed or ceased to come true. They all came true. The Lord established Samuel as a legitimate prophet. And he was recognized as a prophet, this last couple verses tells us, by all of Israel. The, the passage on a service reading has now set us up for what is to come. Samuel is established as the prophet. We're going to see in chapters 4 through 7 the, now the actual fall of Eli and his sons and his family. 
But beneath the surface of the text, we see how God appears to Samuel in Shiloh in the context of worship and in the context of word. If you want to be intimate with God, these are two postures that will help. Worship with the community and deep reading of the scriptures. As Protestant people, people of the Reformation Church, right, we ought to be like, yes, I'm glad he put that in there. Or I'm sure Luther saw that when he was doing his thing because this isn't saying that God met with uh, Samuel and Shiloh through crazy dreams and visions all the time. It says he continued speaking to him. How? Through his word. Which is why we are committed to exegetical preaching and being in God's word. That's how he speaks to us. Yay. Altogether, these passages give us five postures that will help us find intimacy with God. Obedience. Listening. Repentance. Worship. And the word being in scripture. I don't want to end quite yet, and this is why. I believe that Jesus and the word of God every time brings us good news, not just good advice. If I leave us with five principles to try and go follow in our own strength, five postures, it's going to leave us frustrated quickly. That's not good news. It's just good advice. We've read our passage today on the surface. We've read a bit under the surface. Now I want to read in the depths of the waters of Christian faith. In the past weeks, we've seen already how Samuel is functioning as a type of Jesus. That means his life and his story invite us to look ahead to Jesus. We looked at things last week like how Samuel was born as a miracle child, a lot like Jesus. How Jesus' mother, Mary, sang the Magnificat, this amazing song of praise based on Hannah's song, Samuel's mom. Samuel would confront religious authorities and usher in a new way of God relating to people. Jesus condemned the temple and religious establishment, ushering in a new way of relating to God through him. When the first humans rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, they felt shame. When God was walking in the garden after they had sinned and were shamed, he called out, where are you? And they replied, we were hiding because we were naked and ashamed. In Samuel, we begin to see a breaking of the shame cycle. When God calls his name, Samuel doesn't hide. What does he say? Here I am. He's pointing to the work of Jesus, who isn't just another step in salvation history like Samuel is. Jesus is the answer. He undoes completely the curse of Adam. Paul, in his book to the Romans, suggests that Jesus is a new Adam, a new human, a human without sin and without shame. A Savior who, because he is fully human, can identify with our state of sin and shame. But because he's fully God, he can actually do something about our condition and free us from sin and shame. Jesus has taken the initiative to restore intimacy with us. Jesus has done the work. He is not aloof. 
He's not waiting on some cold and distant throne, waiting for us to practice the five postures so that we can know him a little bit better. He's already done everything short of forcing us to know that we're loved, which he would never do because that's not loving. It is Jesus that Samuel points to. It is Jesus who is our source of life. And it is Jesus who I want to turn our attention to now. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for the dis-ease in us that we often feel when we are out of sync with you. That is a grace. We praise you, Holy Spirit, as being the one who often reminds us that we're skimming over the surface of this deep and rich life that Jesus gave us. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here today, whether they're kindergartners or wishing they were, or that if you have touched a heartstring, if you have through this word presented a longing for more intimacy with you, would you help us? Would you draw us in to deeper relationship with you? Work through these postures, work through our community. But Lord, help us to receive what is already ours, a a deep and loving and lasting relationship with the living God. Thank you, Jesus.